0: All right. Um, so first, could you say your first and last name and your title for me?
1: Sure. Uh, my name is uh, David Galbus Reg. I am the Medical Director of Addiction Services at Ascension Wisconsin All Saints. I'm also the president of the Wisconsin Society of Addiction Medicine as well currently.
0: We know COVID has changed so much. Um, what trends are, are you noticing and are you concerned about now that we're a, a few months into all of this?
1: So it's been interesting.
0: Telemedicine, addiction minefields, addiction treatment, how COVID 19 is changing your healthcare now and potentially forever. From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire. Brian Polson is on assignment. Today is Thursday, August 13th. We're taking a deep dive into an issue that affects everyone, how your healthcare is evolving in the era of COVID-19. Before we get into today's episode, there are some things you should know. We'll be talking about a few different medications used to treat opioid addiction. One is called buprenorphine, commonly known by the brand name Suboxone. The other is called methadone. They're both used to reduce cravings, but they both also have restrictions because of concerns they could be abused. So with that, let's get right to our conversation with Dr. David Galvis-Rudge.
1: Obviously, when COVID hit, uh, we responded, the the country responded by going to uh, a model where, you know, anyone that could work at home would work at home. And in healthcare, that meant that anyone that could do telemedicine was to transition to telemedicine. So we've been doing a lot of telemedicine. In fact, my my practice currently is 100 percent telemedicine, which is something I never <laughs> envisioned in a hundred years. But as far as trends, uh, we're seeing a lot more alcohol use disorder. I've seen patients uh, come in uh, for alcohol withdrawal management who had not been ever in the hospital or had never needed that or had been abstinent for years. Um, and unfortunately, because of furlough jobs or uh, layoffs or you know, just uh, the requirements for social distancing, unfortunately, that isolation increased the risk that they they were going to drink, and and they did start drinking. And and you've probably seen in the media as well that, um, and I mean you've probably covered it, the increased risk rates of overdose deaths uh, related to uh, opiates. We have seen that. It's hard to know how much of that would have happened without COVID. I mean, we you know it's you know it's that one of those things where hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, would we have seen the same increases this year if, uh, if COVID hadn't happened? I don't know. Um, but it's, it's uh, telling that it started to happen really in April, May. Um, we started to see increasing rates of overdose, uh, which, which I find interesting. And again, it's, it's not a cause and effect relationship. It's really hard to figure out. It just happens to be a, a pattern we're seeing.
0: What about people's ability to access their medications like Suboxone, or I'm thinking even like methadone, especially, what has COVID done to the ability to get those medications?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So as soon as um, um, we realized what was going to happen in, in early March, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, you know, obviously of which I'm a part of, really started to advocate strongly or changes to the way that methadone is dispensed you know as you know methadone is a, a treatment that requires you to go into the clinic every day and and they have very short windows uh, with respect to uh, being able to administer the medication so you have a lot of patients who come in at very specific times and they all wait in line to get this medication so you've got a lot of close proximity and in, in those situations, you, you can't social distance. These are small clinics. So um, one thing that we advocated for strongly was a change in the rules around take-home dosing. So being uh, permitting patients to be able to have take-home doses, even if they weren't at a stage necessarily where we would normally allow that. But trying to do it in a, a rational way um, so that we weren't giving the highest risk patients uh, take home doses, but we were reducing the overall clinic volume at any given time. And I think uh, uh, SAMHSA did a wonderful job responding to that. Um, so uh, and our state opiate authority, um, every state has an opiate authority that that oversees the methadone the, the uh, opiate treatment uh, centers. And our state opiate authority was extremely responsive. And so we were able to quickly transition some of that or most of that to, to new models, essentially, where there were more take-home privileges uh, and, and less in-office or in, in the clinic lines. So we were able to kind of transition that. Many of the clinics actually also expanded hours, which you know typically they're very early morning hours. People dose at the same time and then they have some visits during the day and they close earlier but they were able to kind of expand their hours so that they could see patients in a more staggered fashion. So there were a lot of things that changed in methadone programs in particular because of uh, COVID. Um, but as far as access to medication, for the most part, at least in, in, in my neck of the woods, we haven't seen a huge issue with access um, uh, because the providers haven't changed. Um, we've seen a difference in the way people access the medication or healthcare. But we haven't seen a decrease necessarily in access, at least in in our area. The one challenge has been with methadone clinics is that there is one requirement that did not change, and that is the initial assessment. So the first time you go into the methadone clinic, so if I see if if I see a patient who I think needs methadone and I send them to the methadone clinic, that first visit must be in person. That's required, um, and that has not changed. And. And that's been a little bit challenging for some of the, for some of the methadone clinics. Um, uh, ours has managed, the one in Racine has managed to, to figure that out. So we, I haven't had an issue getting someone in that needs to be in the methadone clinic. But, uh, you know, so access, in my opinion, at least in my area, hasn't really decreased. Um, and I, I haven't heard that access has been a, a huge issue. No, I shouldn't say a huge issue. It hasn't been more of an issue than it usually is or has been prior to the pandemic. Um, and in fact, in some ways, access has gotten easier because of telemedicine. So I have patients that were driving uh, 40 minutes each way to get to me uh, for appointments. And with the, this crisis, you know, as I transitioned to telemedicine, they join me virtually now and they don't have to drive. So they save 80 minutes of drive time um, to get to me and so you know it's a significant savings not only in gas money for these individuals but in time um, that's time away from jobs that's time away from family uh in the car so um they've actually been thrilled by that uh, and they've actually told me that they prefer to stay this way even after the pandemic if, as much as possible it, which you know the rules have gotten a little more slack so the other thing that changed is prior to the pandemic I was required to see patients face-to-face to to be able to prescribe buprenorphine. That was another thing that changed, uh, at least for the initial visit. Again, I was required to see a patient face-to-face and that was quickly changed um, uh, with the advent of the pandemic. And so they kind of waived a lot of those rules to allow us to be able to start or initiate treatment without seeing a person face-to-face. In fact, I can now initiate a patient with a telephone call. So let's say someone doesn't have access to any type of video conferencing uh, whether it's a smartphone a laptop a tablet whatever i can have a telephone conversation with them assess them via telephone and still prescribe suboxone now which i was not able to do prior to the pandemic because that was not part of the regulations and the you know the the rules so so it's been um in some ways certain aspects of this pandemic have actually increased access to care Um, The other thing, for example, was emergency privileging. I am now privileged in hospitals in Milwaukee, uh, which I never saw privileging at because it's just, you know, I don't know how much you know about getting hospital privileges, but the forms are kind of a nightmare um, and it takes forever. Um, With emergency privileging, I was able to get on staff at several hospitals and help them out. And several of these hospitals did not have access to addiction medicine or psychiatry. Uh, prior to the pandemic. So I've been doing virtual consults at several Milwaukee hospitals. And I think my impression has been that both the patients and the staff there have found it very useful. And so we are actually seeking permanent privileging, which which will happen. I mean, it just takes time. And that's why the emergency privileging was important. So uh, including my two other colleagues, my two nurse practitioners that work with me so that we can rotate and cover all these hospitals not just in Racine, but also in Milwaukee to provide consultation. And then in some cases, follow up. I'm seeing a couple of Milwaukee patients now via virtual, via telemedicine, because it was hard to get them into another provider. So it's been, it's been challenging. It's been, um, you know, an interesting time. You know, that's, that's the human nature. We have to adapt. Um, and, and that's what this has all been about is adapting to what's happening uh, in society and, and across our planet.
0: And it sounds like we're in an interesting spot where on one hand, like you described, access to care is easier. And it sounds like those might be some tools you'd like to keep around after the pandemic's over. But then in other cases, of course, you have conditions being exacerbated that could, you know, really push someone in a direction they didn't want to go.
1: Right. So, I mean, we know uh, that socialization is extremely important to decrease risks of relapse. So, isolation social isolation increases risk of relapse especially early in recovery so what one of the patterns i've seen which which is interesting is that my patients early on who were very early in recovery within three months of you know treatment so they had just gone through withdrawal management gotten into treatment and then all of a sudden the pandemic hit those are the patients that fared the worst so my stable patients the patients that have been in recovery for longer periods of time who have uh, uh, higher levels of resilience already um, were able to access other networks or social networks to be able to help them maintain that abstinence. And, you know, and I think that the treatment community, the the recovery community has done an excellent job. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know how much you know about the 12-step programs going virtual, but 12-step programs all went virtual. Now, it's not the same, and patients will tell you it's not the same, you know, there, there is something to having this in-person uh, contact or this human touch, if you will. And I'm not talking about necessarily physical touching, but just being in the presence of other people that you don't get from this type of virtual. Um, and yet it has provided an outlet for some of my patients who have very severe social anxiety, who do not want to be in a room with a bunch of people, but are OK with the screen. Amazingly enough, um, because it's, it's a different experience. Again, it's, it's just, you know, whether it's psychological or whatever, it's a very different experience to be in the room with people than to be in, in a group of people on a virtual network. So, so I've had patients wh- for whom the online experience has actually been a boon. They've, they would have never attended a 12-step meeting because of their anxiety, but they logged on to an online meeting and they've continued to do so and they've actually done really well. I think what we're going to learn out of this or, or, or hopefully realize out of this is that there's a role for technology in in healthcare that we haven't been utilizing to the utmost of ability i mean i, I have to be honest i was what i i was a physician who really was opposed to telemedicine i have to before all this happened i i just did not feel that this kind of interaction was going to be the same. I didn't think it would bring, you know, be able to to lead to really good interpersonal relationships or physician-patient relationships. I, I admit that I was wrong. Um, I mean, I have developed some very good uh, relationships with some patients that um, through just telemedicine, I've never seen them in person. And, and I think that we fostered a pretty strong bond. And these are patients that I probably otherwise would have never been able to see because of geographical distance. So, so I found that, um, you know, some of my own biases about technology were, were misplaced, and and I think we need to utilize technology in healthcare better than we have, and and not resist it so much.
0: Going off of that, COVID obviously isn't going anywhere anytime soon. So what do you hope to see long term out of the next several months? Now that you've seen what technology can do, and you've seen, you know, how certain restrictions and and barriers to access for patients can be lifted
1: yeah so what i'm hoping is that as we move forward we develop a tech uh, you know some rules or change some of the rules a little bit so that for example methadone clinics which were never really given the option to do take-home privileging for people that have to drive two hours to get there every day that we see some exceptions in some of these rules so that we can better manage patients and meet them where they're at. Um, I mean, especially in places in northern Wisconsin, where some of these patients are driving literally an hour and a half to two hours every day to just get dosed and then going back. How can you work if you have to drive an hour and a half, you know, three hours a day? I mean, unless you work by the methadone clinic, you go in, dose, work by the methadone clinic and drive back in the evening. I mean, it's really difficult to schedule around your work. Um, So I'd like to see more flexibility built into the opiate treatment programs. I think most of us would like to see that. I also think we need to utilize telemedicine more. So some of the check-ins, some of the follow-up visits, and not just for, for an opiate treatment provider, but for any of us that do addiction medicine that most of these follow-up visits, particularly for people that are geographically uh, limited um, and maybe living in the middle, you know, in, in far far from a clinic where they can access an addiction specialist, that they are able to do telemedicine, um, that we have the ability to do that uh, and that the regulations allow us to do that and bill for it and get reimbursed for it. One of the challenges with telemedicine uh, in the past has been reimbursement. So, you know, in traditionally prior to COVID, if I were to do a telemedicine consult, even though I'm providing the exact same service, from my specialty, it really doesn't change whether I see them in person or face-to-face because I do less of a physical exam than I would as an internist uh, in my internal medicine practice. So for addiction providers and psychiatrists, what we do via telemedicine is very similar to what we would do in person, and yet the reimbursement was half. Um, And telephone was not even permitted. So we wouldn't even get anything for telephone visits. So a person that, like a 75 year old who doesn't have access to a smartphone or doesn't have access to a laptop or tablet or any other way of getting in touch with their doctor, if I did a telephone visit, I would not get anything. I'd get zero, even if I did the same thing for that person. So I think being able to have the ability to utilize these tools and get reimbursed appropriately for them, I think is gonna be really important moving forward. And then some flexibility and some of the, the stringent rules around being able to provide these life-saving medicines to patients is going to be really important as well.
0: Do you think that it would take legislation requiring more of a reimbursement, or are insurance companies already st- kind of starting to move toward telemedicine on their own?
1: Well, I, I, you know, insurance companies, private insurers tend to follow Medicare. So I think you know what, what uh, uh, Dr. Verma at Medicare decides to do with telemedicine will guide what many of the private insurers will do. There may be situations where legislation will be necessary. I know uh, that in Rhode Island, for example, um, they, you know, uh, the Rhode Island uh, Society of Addiction Medicine and, and in concert with a couple other, uh, medical societies had introduced legislation to, to basically make some of these changes permanent uh, in Rhode Island. And um, that legislation, at least from, an, from the American Society of Addiction Medicine standpoint, has actually become kind of the standard for what we would like to see happen in other states. It's not unreasonable. I know insurers are worried about their bottom line. And I can tell you, the bottom line actually in some ways will improve because if these patients have access to care, they're not going to end up in the emergency room every week or every other week needing withdrawal management or with an overdose or whatever. So if we can get these patients into treatment, we actually save the system a lot of money on the back end, um, which isn't intangible, which is, you know, it's hard to measure that. I mean, you can't, you know, that's hard to know. If we didn't do this, what would have happened? I mean, we don't do those kinds of experiments. We don't say, okay, we're not going to treat you because we want to see how many times you end up in the ER. That's kind of unethical. So, so we just won't know how much the savings are. But we do know that there's a significant cost savings from multiple you know, epidemiological or observational studies. And that's what insurers need to look at is, is yes, and there may be an added cost because people will show up. That's the other thing, by the way. No-show rates with telemedicine significantly decreased. When I had to see patients in the office, there were issues with transportation. That's another one I didn't mention. So geographic isolation is one, but many of my Medicaid patients have no transportation. Medicaid has a transportation benefit, but it, it it's 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 not very efficient. So it's very sometimes they're late, they don't make it, then the patients are late, then you know, they miss their appointments. And so one thing I've noticed with telemedicine is no-show rates, and it's not just me. Um, I've talked to colleagues in different parts of the country, and and, and even within Wisconsin, and Madison and in Milwaukee, no-show rates have significantly dropped. So my no-show rate prior with Medicaid prior to COVID was you know somewhere in the forty percent range, twenty to forty percent range, which is huge. It depended on the week. My no-show rate now is about five to ten percent, um, which is a significant decrease in no-shows. So. Um, and I have bad weeks, like every other physician, there are weeks where they don't show up or something happens, but, but, uh, you know, most of my patients show up, they, they log in, they click the button, they, we talk, and, I mean, we see each other and it's been, it's been wonderful as far as, you know, from that standpoint and very rewarding. Um, so I, I, there are certain benefits that I, I think need to remain. Um, now is there a role for in-person? Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> that face-to-face in-person contact is extremely important, but in and in some specialties, it's more important than others. I mean, if I had to do internal medicine or if I was doing general internal medicine, I'd have to do lung and heart exams. Now I could do that digitally. There are ways to do that, but but in general, the, that human element of, of being in person is very important in medicine, but there's also a role for telemedicine in between appointments. You know, if I if I, if I were doing general medicine and, and one of my patients developed a cold or flu-like symptoms, I wouldn't want them coming in. I would want to be able to see them to, via telemedicine. I don't necessarily need to do a full exam in those cases. I can assess many things, and I'm learning to assess more and more via telemedicine as I get into it because I, I've gotten better at using the screen, so to speak. But um, we can avoid that kind of you know uh, contact in, in situations where it might put other people at risk.
0: I know that some people are going to think, okay, but some of the the barriers that were in place were presumably designed for safety. Right. So the idea that you have to go get methadone in person. That was at least the idea behind it. Um, You know, same with the the restrictions surrounding prescribing buprenorphine and not being able to do that over the phone so was there any underlying truth to that original presumption and then if so how do you keep some of those safety mechanisms in place
1: with respect to methadone i I think that those are those are much better much more legitimate concerns methadone is a much more uh a much riskier medication to to prescribe than buprenorphine so and which is why it's more tightly controlled there there are some people looking into that so Obviously, this has also been a social experiment in, in ways. So, you know, th- this change was required. I mean, we, we had to do this, right, to, to, to help, you know, prevent illness. So in the process of doing that, we created a, a sort of social experiment, the before and after. So I, I go BC, before COVID, AC, after COVID. So BC, we had this really rigid model. And yes, there were lots of safety checks built in. And, and how did that work? And what were the relapse rates then? And what was, you know overdose rates in those patients? And now we have after COVID and we can measure that. We can compare because the one thing about uh, these methadone programs, they're required to keep very tight records. So we will get data on um, whether it was safe or whether it created more problems uh, when we went to the, the more flexible model after COVID struck. We don't have those yet. Um, It hasn't been really that long. I can't tell you anecdotally, obviously, I've seen seen a few patients that were probably not doing well, and they weren't actually. I know they weren't doing well before COVID. So again, early recovery, who didn't do well with the flexibility. They needed that accountability. But I've also seen patients who hadn't been what we call phased, so they hadn't been able to get the take-home privileges, who have actually done really well with take-home privileges. At this point, I haven't heard of any major high-rate issues, at least not in Wisconsin, where, where it's been a big problem. So time will tell, unfortunately. I mean, we don't have that data, um, but that's, that's where I think we need to utilize this unfortunate social experiment to figure out, were these before-COVID uh, regulations too stringent? Do we need to make them a little more flexible? But, but keep in mind some of the things we're seeing after COVID. So in certain situations, what are the risk factors for people to not do well with the flexibility? And can we keep those people in this rigid model and maybe make things more flexible for other people? And I can tell you that, you know, from an addiction standpoint, there are lots of things that we know are risk factors. So someone who has a very good family life, they have very good support structures. Those are people that you can probably... Uh, transition and, and, and be more flexible with than someone who who doesn't have that, who doesn't have any support, who's living maybe, who's homeless. Um, those are maybe patients who have a tougher time uh, with the flexibility. I mean, where are they going to keep their take-home dose? They can't just keep it in their pocket. <laughs> so there may be situations where certain risk factors make it more important to have that rigidity. And in certain situations, we can have more flexibility. The problem BC before COVID is that the rules were, not flexible at all. Everyone was in the same bucket. It didn't matter what the risk factors were. As a clinician, when I assess a buprenorphine patient, I take that into account. So how frequently I see a patient depends on some of the other things they have in place. You know, if they have a very strong social network of of sober individuals that are helping them and are supporting them, I feel much more comfortable prescribing for longer periods of time in between seeing them than I would in someone who is you know, homeless and and their environment is very, very uh, chaotic. So, um, and I take that into account when I make decisions. And, but methadone clinics can't really do that. The clinicians, they're required to follow very stringent, rigid rules that are created by federal government, which is, it's worked. I mean, it's worked for years, but the question is, can we now look at maybe making a little more flexible and and i don't know the i don't know the answer at this point um that's where some of this data is going to be really important to see how did we do during this time did it help or did it hurt
0: is there anything you want to add anything i missed
1: um the only other thing is you know i i think it's important to recognize that while people really have focused on opiates opiates are not the biggest i mean they're a big killer um, I'm not discounting uh, the, the, the scourge of opiates, but we got to realize there's many, many other substances out there that are a big problem. And in Wisconsin, one of those is alcohol. We have seen a surge in patients who are presenting with alcohol, significant alcohol intoxication and, and, and requesting alcohol withdrawal management, many of whom had never had a problem. So, one thing I, I really encourage people to think about is that I, I recognize that there are lots of people that are, are living in a very different world. Or I mean, we're all different, living in a very different world right now. Be careful about the alcohol. Um, be careful about how you drink. Be mindful about what safe drinking levels are and what unsafe drinking levels are. And if you need help, there is help.
0: But most yeah. of the, the norms around that are gone now. Right. So it's like, and, and we kind of laugh it off, you know, it's like, Oh, zoom happy hour. But it's, uh, I, I could see where it would be easy for someone who was currently operating in what's considered socially normal. Um, you know, that's gone now.
1: Right. And that's, and that's why I tell people, you got to be very mindful about what you're drinking. I mean, when a bartender made you a drink in the bar, uh, they measured it because they don't want to lose money. When you make a drink at home, most people aren't measuring it, so you may even be drinking more when you make a you, you know your margarita or whatever than you're drinking at a bar. So you have to be very careful about that. And and I encourage people. I mean, you know, it, it, the standards for drinking are are very well set. What's considered low risk drinking? Um, and it's it's not as much alcohol as people think. It's actually a lot less. And it is different for what men is, and women.
0: What is that standard? So.
1: So for women, um, it's less than four drinks in a 24hour. I, t- I think we call it a drinking episode. I try to make it so it's pretty clear. Within a 24hour period, less than four drinks. So what's a drink? So a standard drink is a 12ounce regular beer, not one of those fortified beers that's like 10 or 12 percent alcohol. So a regular like Miller or Bud, Budweiser or whatever. So a 12ounce of beer is one drink. Five ounces of wine. How many of us have ever measured how much wine we put in a glass? I don't. And then one and a half ounces of, uh, of liquor, hard liquor. So to put that in perspective, those little mini bottles, the airplane bottles, that's two shots. That's two drinks in that bottle. Even though people think, Oh, they make them. So it's cause it's one drink. No, it's actually two in that bottle. It's about three ounces in that bottle. So that little mini bottle is about three ounces. Um, cause I had a patient going, Oh yeah, no, I only drink one drink a day. I said, no, you're drinking two. That's the two shots right there. It's a double shot so um and that's a standard drink so in for women the standard is less than three in a 24-hour period and less than seven total standard drinks in a week but that's not a lot
0: yeah yeah.
1: Uh, for men under the age of 65 it's a, it's double that right? except for the for the total weekly but for the daily it's less than five drinks in a 24-hour period and less than 14 drinks in a week and the, People are like, well, why is that? Well, it turns out women absorb more alcohol, about 20 to 30% more than men. So, you know, when people say women tend to get intoxicated faster, it's a genetic thing. It is true. So women tend to absorb more alcohol until men get older. So over the age of 65, men need to drink no more than what women drink. Um, So it needs to go back down, which is, that's the other problem I run into, is men over the age of 65 who are still drinking like they were 20 Um, who then get in trouble with the alcohol because they think they can still drink like they were 20, but they can't. Um, So, I mean, those are the important things to recognize. And in a bar, people do kind of, when they make these cocktails, they really do measure it. Because, you know, if you you give people double shots all the time, you're going to lose a lot of money. So you're measuring them quite a bit at home we don't tend to do that so people kind of eyeball Ah, yeah that's it so you're probably getting two or three shots without even knowing it and over time that builds up and that primes the brain so people think well I've never had a family history of addiction so there's no no risk for me and while the risk is lower for people that don't have a family history it's not zero um, it's not like anyone has a zero risk of addiction when you take enough of this medicine, it changes the brain. Like you said, it it changes the circuitry. So over time you can start to develop some of the same symptoms and signs of developing an alcohol use disorder. And I've had several patients like that who have had no family history. And it's been more common during this pandemic than prior to where I've seen patients without a family history. So so that's something important to remember is that there is a reason we have these low risk drinking levels. And by the way, those may be adjusted there's a lot of talk about actually decreasing those numbers even more because there's there's some concern that those numbers may actually be too high, and they may not really be low risk. But for now, that's what we have considered low risk. And and keep in mind that's most of us don't drink that much, anyways. Um, but it does for some of us that drink more, that that seems like it's not that much.
0: Well, and I I've noticed a lot of the language surrounding drinking. So even like drinking for women, right? It's like, oh, mom juice and yeah. just give yourself a glass of wine every Like there's almost um a little more of a culture. I mean, we're already in Wisconsin, so there there's a culture around it in Wisconsin, um, and in our country in general. But I, I've just noticed, especially around women, there seems to be more of a like a like a mom drinking.
1: It's become more acceptable over the years, which, you know, I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with moderation. I mean, and and I'm not, you know, I'm not bashing, you know, people that drink. I mean, there's nothing wrong with moderation. The problem is that when you glorify it, or when you, when you, when you start to use it to say, okay, this is my, this is my tool to relax. So now you start using it as a relaxation technique. That's when you start to get into problematic, you know, when you when it can become problematic, because if that becomes your coping tool or your coping strategy for stressful situations, you know, life is all stress. I mean, I I hate to say that, but I mean, I would love to meet someone who says they have no stress in life because I, you know, I want to know their trick. As you start using that as a coping strategy, it becomes more and more your coping strategy because a lot of the other coping strategies go out the window. Because not only does it become a coping strategy, it tickles that part of the brain that also makes us feel good, the pleasure center. So then becomes not only a coping strategy, but actually an extra boost to it. It becomes self-reinforcing where we want that more than any other coping strategy. And so we stop using some of the other coping strategies, which becomes actually dangerous because that's when you start to get into trouble. So I, I would caution people to to recognize that when they start to talk that way and some of it's joking and and you know social you know w- we all say things socially that you know even even physicians i mean we're physicians are people people think well you, you shouldn't be talking that way well when you're in public with people you're not a physician you don't think that way you think like everybody else my brain is hardwired like everybody else in this culture in layman's terms um and and that's one of the things one of my colleagues told me early on is you can't expect physicians to think like physicians outside of the work. They'll say one thing at work, but when you see them in public, unfortunately, they may not be saying that same thing because they're thinking like people think. And, and it's true. And we all do that. And so we have to be cognizant of how we talk about this and, and what we're using it for. I mean, you know, there are people, I have, a, I have an uncle who drinks a glass of wine with his lunch and dinner every single day. He's done that all of his life he's spanish he's a, he lives in spain um, they do that there it's with food so it's how they drink most people here don't tend to eat it's not like a, it doesn't it's not an accompaniment to a meal it's its own kind of thing and that that makes a difference so how you drink makes a difference the context of when you drink and why you drink i mean he enjoys it because it complements his meal he doesn't do it for any other reason. It's not It's not a coping strategy. It doesn't give him, you know, it's not doing anything except that it just, it's an accompaniment to his meal. And, and so how we drink and how we think about it really influences what it will do to us down the road. Um, drinking in isolation, these, you know, like you said, these happy hour, virtual happy hours where people are drinking but not eating and no one's pouring them their drinks. So they're making these super powerful drinks. I mean, <laughs> cause they're not really measuring anything you know, they, they, that can get dangerous pretty quick. The other thing is I wanna make sure people realize treatment is still available. We have access. You have to call, I mean, there's, there's. Uh, I think the state set up a 211 number um, that they can call for help. The suicide hotline is still, you know, if you need help, don't hesitate to get the help. We're still available. COVID has not paralyzed healthcare. Um, we still do our jobs and, and we still take care of patients and we still want to. So. Um, you know, if you need to help, please access the help. It's available.
0: are going to continue bringing you these twice weekly episodes of Open Record as we cover the COVID-19 pandemic and so much more. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email at WITI underscore the investigators at fox.com. Again, that's WITI underscore the investigators at fox.com. Thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, and we will be back with our next regularly scheduled episode on
1: Tuesday.